You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. It's really good because at my church, like at this time, I have to like ring a bell or like make an announcement that it's time to start. Go back to your seats. But you guys just on your own, you can get them trained. No, I want to thank you again for having me tonight. I, I can't tell you how encouraged I am every time I meet with this gathering. I am by nature an introvert. I do a lot of hand-wringing, um, nerves before I come to another church to preach. Uh, but when I walk in this door and I start seeing people I know that I love and that, that, that love me and, and are just so kind to me, I just all those things go away. I was so excited to see Caleb. I came around the corner. I haven't, it's probably been years um, since we've seen each other. So... I just, I feel so welcome when I'm here, and that's a testament to, to the congregation here, to the leadership, and I want to thank you, because I always feel just so welcome when I come to be with you guys. We are going to be in Acts chapter 2 tonight. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. I want to give a, uh, I just want to tell you ahead of time, I talked to Pastor Dave. He said it was okay for me to preach from this passage. Um, we are going to, the to- speaking in tongues is, is in this passage. That's not going to be our, our focus, our emphasis, but You'll wreck it when we read here in a minute. You're going to see that it's there. And I don't want to ignore that it's there. Um, so I talked to him first. I said, is it okay if I use this passage for what we're going to do? And he said, absolutely. So, again, I've got, if you get upset, it's, you can talk to him. All right, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll, we'll uh, pray over the, scripture, or over the sermon and we'll begin. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthian and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our blessed and heavenly Father, God, we give thanks again this evening for your word. We give thanks for this word that is truth and that penetrates the hearts and the minds of all those who hear it. God, we ask now that you would bless us, that we would hear it and receive it with joy and thanksgiving. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, again, I just, good evening and thanks for, thank you for having me again. I I spoke to Pastor, he invited me to come down, I don't know, two, three months ago, um, and um, when we talked, I asked him, I said, what would be beneficial to the congregation of Revolution, at Revolution. Um, and we talked for a few minutes about a couple of different things. And, and what he finally uh, told me, what he really thinks may be very beneficial at this time, was he said, what do you have, anything you have about missions? 
said, evangelism seems to be something that's hard for a lot of it. And I think that's probably true for, for most congregations. Um, so, t- so tonight, that's what we're, we're really going to focus on. That passage we read, those first 13 verses, we're going to really focus on what's happening in the first half of that passage. Um, because I think this is one of the more foundational New Testament passages when we talk about missions, is, is Acts chapter 2. However, to do so, to look at this passage and understand everything that's going on, we do need to, to briefly set some context. And I'm going to do it rather quickly, but we're going to look quickly at Acts chapter 1, particularly one verse. If you just flip back a page to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, what you see there is, is what we call the thematic statement for the entire book of Acts. Everything that we see in the book of Acts flows from and is driven by this singular verse. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in other words, in in Acts chapter 1, God promises to gift the church with his own spirit, and explains the implications that they will be, the church will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so here in Acts chapter 2, where we are tonight, Jesus at this point has told the apostles and the rest of his disciples to wait here in Jerusalem for the coming of his own spirit, and explains the implications as well, that they will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. They've witnessed his life, They've witnessed his death, they've witnessed his resurrection, and they have been commissioned to be his witnesses to the world, and then witnessed even his ascension, and received the promise we just read in Acts 1, verse 8. But first, what Jesus tells them is that they must wait, which we know is often no easy task. There's certainly here, and if you think about this moment and what's going on here, there is certainly a sense of excitement and, and uncertainty certainty surrounding this situation. And waiting was without a doubt difficult for all of these disciples. But there was a reason God wanted them to wait, was that the mission they'd been given, had they not waited, would have been completely impossible if they were to attempt it without being properly equipped by the Spirit of God. If they were to attempt the mission in their own power, in their own volition, apart from the help of the Holy Spirit, their failure would be absolutely certain. And so they had to wait. And they did wait for the coming of God's Spirit. And that's what we're looking at is the fulfillment of this promise. When Jesus says His Spirit will come, when we look at Acts chapter 2 in these first 13 verses, Jesus is following through on His promise. So, I've been here before, you guys. I've told you before, if you've been here when I'm here, we have a truth taught every week at our church, something that if you walk away remembering nothing else about what I said tonight, I want you to remember this. This should be the truth we walk away with, that God has gifted his church with the Holy Spirit to empower us to carry out the the mission to which we've been called. The directive that he's given us, the imperative that he's given us, he has sent us forward on that mission equipped with his very own spirit. In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, the Lord said this. He said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
And so God has, has placed his very own spirit. By sending his spirit, he is following through on that promise by placing his very own spirit in both person and power within each and every Christian believer. And because the person and the power of the spirit abides within the believer, we are therefore equipped and we are empowered to carry out the task of the church, which is to be a witness to the good news of the risen Christ. And this is important for us, I think, at all times, whether we're talking about first century Christians or today, because one of the issues I think all Christians and churches face at one time or another is idleness or complacency in terms of the mission. In our efforts to be on mission as kingdom witnesses, it's easy to become complacent with where we are and idle in our efforts to be faithful. And this idleness is exactly the opposite of what we've been called to. Jesus himself said he does not want a lukewarm church, but he wants a church that's passionate for him and for, for, the, for his causes, for his church, for his gospel. And I think that there are, are primarily two reasons that cause this, and there are probably many, but at least two. And I think the first and probably the foremost is the discouragement we often feel when we, when we do share the gospel and we don't see immediate results. We expect to see something tangible when we share the gospel with an unbeliever, but we don't always see that. And it's very easy to get discouraged when we don't see, at least in our own eyes, any fruit from our efforts. And then the second being contentment. We feel like we've accomplished all that, that we're really going to accomplish. We've given all that we have to give, and we just don't have any more to give. There's nothing left for us to, for us to accomplish, whether it be spiritually or emotionally or intellectually. All of our resources have just been tapped out and we're worn down or maybe it's it's what my father-in-law calls rocking chair doctrine god's got this god is sovereign he's going to call who he'll call i don't need to do anything i'm just going to sit back and put my feet up in my rocking chair but whatever it may be what we should see today is that none of these are the right or a godly attitude they're not what the what the bible what the gospel calls us toward and this mission that we've been given, but we should be diligent to labor for the kingdom. We should never be discouraged because of what we know is true about God's spirit, that he has sent us forward with his spirit, empowered by his spirit, that the person and power of his spirit dwells with us. And because of the knowledge of that truth, we can go forward in faithfulness. And so what we're going to do again as we look at this passage, we're going to look at it under three headings. As I said, we're really going to focus on the first half but the first two of these headings um, we're going to look at really deal with the passage in sequence in the order that, it, that it's given to us. And then the third is really looking at the passage or the event as a whole. So let's look at the first four verses that I've entitled the, the promise kept. So Luke provides, again, the setting for the event in verse 1. He says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. When he says all here, he's likely referring to the 120 who had been together in the upper room. If you remember, uh, in the upper room, when Matthias had been selected to replace uh, Judas and fulfill his responsibilities. But probably here, the more important thing to note in this verse is that this occurred on the day of Pentecost. That's, that's the big thing to, to, to notice here. This event was 10 days after the ascension of Christ, which fell on the Old Testament celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost was the second of three annual feasts of the harvest on the Jewish calendar, often called the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. And since there are seven days in a week, a week of weeks is 49 days. And so after the celebration of the, of the Passover, the celebration of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, the Jewish calendar counted a week of weeks from that day. 
and the Passover, uh, from the Passover and held a celebration for the completion of the harvest on the 50th day. And that's what Pentecost is. That's literally what Pentecost means, 50 days or the 50th day. And it's certainly no coincidence that God sent the gift of his spirit exactly 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. And so it's the day of Pentecost. It's brief context to Pentecost there, but it's the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Christ has ascended. And now, now the waiting is over. Right? Jesus asked them to wait in Jerusalem, and the waiting for his promised gift is over. As Luke goes on in verses 2 through 4, he says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now before we, we notice or note anything else, I want us to just take a moment and let this sink in. That this thing that God's people have been looking forward to for centuries, right, all the way back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as I just read a minute ago, this thing they've been waiting on, it just happened. God's promise was just fulfilled and kept. The Holy Spirit has descended and taken up its place within the hearts of God's disciples. This must have been one of the most exciting and encouraging moments in all of church history. Now, this is not to say that the Spirit was, was never at work before this moment. If you remember in Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit was active and present at the creation. The Spirit has been eternally existent along with the Father and the Son, but that the Spirit is now working and is accessible in a completely different way to God's people. That a new era, if you will, of the Spirit has begun for God's people. That God's promise has been kept and it has wonderful implications for the church both then and now. It's finally been realized. And we're going to look at those implications. But, but again, let's, I really want to look at the event itself here first before I get ahead of myself. The first thing I want us to see about, about verse 2, or about this event in verse 2, is the origin of the event. Luke tells us, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Luke leaves no doubt here that this was a divine act of God from heaven. An event of divine origin that was beyond the magnitude of anything the apostles themselves could have orchestrated or put together. Something that, that Luke even had trouble describing. He said it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Luke's use of the word like here tells us that this was a sound that was different from anything he'd heard before. But the closest thing he could think of was a sound like a mighty rushing wind that was so powerful and so mighty that it filled the entire house where they were. There's no doubt that this event was of divine origins. And this becomes even clearer to us when we consider the, the theophanies that, off, that also occur in this passage. A theophany is, is simply a manifestation of God, or a way that God reveals himself in a way that is tangible to the human senses, in a way that we can understand it using our own senses. The scriptures tell us that, that God is a spirit, but there are many times throughout history where he's made himself known to us, to his people, in a tangible way. 
That is a way that's visible or a way that's audible or a way that's phys uh, physical. And in this event, God tangibly manifests himself in two different ways. Luke has already told us that there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And this is no surprise. This, the Spirit of God is often referred to as, as wind. Uh, John chapter 3 with Je Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus uses that language himself. That the Spirit comes and goes like the wind. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma, which also carries the meaning of wind or breath. In particular, the spirit or the breath of life. And then the second theophany in this passage comes in verse 3. It says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, Luke doesn't say that this was actually fire. It, it may have been. I'm not pretending to know. But what he says of, that it is like or as of fire. Which again, it's the closest thing that he knew. When he saw this, this is, this is what he could most closely associate it with. And again, this is no surprise. As fire provides both light and warmth, and the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth, the light that dispels the darkness, and the display of affection and warmth towards God's people. Fire was the most common visible manifestation of God to his people in the Old Testament. Remember the burning bush or the, the pillar of cloud and smoke or fire, the chariot of fire, the, the, fire, uh, the visible fire on the mountains during the, uh, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Or even in the New Testament, Hebrews 10.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. But here's the thing that we need to see from all of this. That God is a God who not only reveals himself so that we can know him with these theophanies, these tangible manifestations but that he is a God that is both intimately present and active among his people God didn't just reveal himself to the people in the day of Pentecost but he came to dwell with them he became intimately present and active among him among them God is at work in and among his people and he's guiding them and he's involved in ensuring the success of the mission that he's given them to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. We even see that in the very next verse. As verse 4 goes on, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, God not only visibly and audibly manifested himself, but he descended in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit and filled the disciples with himself. This is an extremely important truth for the Christian to know and to understand as it is the filling of the Spirit that prepares the Christian for the mission. If you were to continue reading, which I believe we're going to after the sermon as part of our scripture reading tonight, you'd see this phrase, I don't know if we're reading that far, but I know we're reading the rest of this chapter, uh, but you'd see this phrase, the filling of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts. And when it's used, it's always used to describe God's preparation of his people for service or for the proclamation of his word. This is important as, as we often hear this phrase and it's used in, in many different ways, but a lot of times we hear this phrase used to describe an emotive feeling or response that a Christian has or feels. However, when the scripture speaks of or, or, or talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit, the authors, they're not referring to something received, but rather they're referring to a magnification of God's Spirit in the believer as he prepares them for action. 
It's referring to God internally preparing his people for the external aspects of the mission, either by way of serving others or preaching and sharing the gospel. This is a magnification of God preparing his people to go forward on this mission. And so God descended upon his disciples on the day of Pentecost. He made himself visibly and audibly known and fulfilling his promise by filling disciples with the Holy Spirit. But then what happened? What was the result of this descending and this filling of the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that question is really found in the remainder of the New Testament and the history of God's church to this very day. However, Luke tells us what the immediate effects were as he continues here in Acts 2. And I mentioned the headings here. I have this, this second heading here titled, The Effects of the Promise Kept. So we're going to look at the next few verses here. So coming back to verse 4, Luke continues. He says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So first we see here the connection between the, the filling with the Spirit followed by the proclamation or the utterance of God's word through tongues. But secondly, as I mentioned earlier, that, that word tongues stands out. We don't want to pretend like it's not there, even though that's not the main thrust of why we're here tonight. We don't want to pretend like it's not there. It stands out. The utterance of tongues has been an oft-explained and, and debated matter within the church. We see the utterance or speaking in tongues here as well as in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. However, I believe this passage to be the primary passage in helping us understand what tongues actually are. Both sets of passages explain what the tongues were used for. Acts 2.11 tells us that they were for the purpose of proclaiming the mighty works of God, for proclaiming the gospel to non-believers, while in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the use of tongues is being used for the edification of the church, for the encouragement of believers. However, the only one of these two passages that directly speaks to what these tongues actually are, as opposed to what they were used for, is the passage we're looking at now, Acts chapter 2. And we'll see this as we continue. Verse 5 continues. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So here's the disciples in Jerusalem, and among them are these devout and pious Jewish men from every nation under heaven. There were men who were faithful Jews from all over the Roman Empire. When Luke says every nation under heaven, he's not speaking literally of every area of the globe, but rather he's just making reference to the area known to him, the known world from his point of view. And this, this becomes evident when he goes on to list these nations. Verses, and I'm not going to read it again, but in verses 9, 10, and 11, he goes through this long list of all these places these men had come from. These men had been spread out. Their families, centuries before, had been spread out during the diaspora, when the Jews were dispersed from their homeland during the Babylonian captivity. Now these descendants of those people are coming back to Jerusalem on this day of Pentecost, speaking very different languages than their families once had. But upon the descending of the, of, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the disciples begin speaking to these men in their own languages, in their native tongues that they've now taken on as, as their families moved out and they took on these new languages, when they come back for Pentecost, the disciples start speaking in their native languages. It says in their own language or their own tongue, as the Greek word here for tongue is glossa, it just simply means a language or dialect of a particular people that differs from other nations. 
This is what the disciples were speaking in. They were speaking in languages of other nations. And the thing to note about all of this is that these tongues or these languages that the disciples were using, they were not indistinguishable. They were understood without the need for translation. These Jewish men understood what they were saying. Luke continues, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, we hear each of us in our own native language? They understood. Without translation, they understood what these men, what the disciples were saying. And so Luke tells us that these tongues were not indistinguishable nonsense, but that they were in the native languages of these men from all over the world. There was not a miracle here to help the hearer, but rather the miracle was to help the speaker speak in a language that was already understood. God didn't concoct a new language that required a new understanding from both the speaker and the hearer, but only the speaker. And this is important in in our understanding of what it means to speak in tongues because none of the other passages in Scripture that address this explain what tongues or languages actually are. But furthermore, one of the, the primary rules of biblical interpretation, this is another reason why this is important for us to at least address this tonight, is that passages that are less clear should always be informed by passages that are more clear. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 don't tell us as much about the tongues as Acts chapter 2 does. So 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 needs to be interpreted by what Acts chapter 2 says, and, and that's a, a principle that's applicable in any time, any time that we're studying the Bible, which is why I asked Dave, I said, I don't really want to skip this. I, want to, I think this is, this is valuable and beneficial for us to at least work through this a little bit. And he said, absolutely, go ahead. So again, if I've, sorry if I've offended anybody. If I have, Dave's your guy, because I'm not going to be back tonight, next week. Anyway, let's go back to our, our passage, though. Let's turn our attention back to the audience to which the disciples were speaking. Again, Luke tells us that, that these were devout men from every nation under heaven, men from all over the world. They were faithful and respectable men who were well-versed in the Jewish faith, but yet they were yet to believe in Christ. And I want us to notice the the power the Spirit has and the way that it begins to draw them, first by, by merely piquing their interests and causing them to ask questions. And eventually, as we'll see, and if you continue to read Peter's sermon later in this chapter, bring thousands of them to faith. But first we see that their attention is drawn toward the powerful work of the Spirit. Again, verse 6, to go back, it says, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Luke writes of their amazement, that the disciples were speaking in their own native tongues. He's, he includes this on purpose. They make reference to the fact that the disciples were Galileans. Galileans who were often looked down upon as uneducated, rural, country folk. In John's gospel, we see this, this same common perception that nothing good nor any prophet would ever come from Nazareth, which was in Galilee. And Luke tells us again in Acts 4 that Peter and John were perceived as uneducated, common men. But yet here they were, speaking in tongues and in new languages. And this wasn't the only thing that intrigued these men. In verse 11, the men said, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works 
of God. So it wasn't just the fact that they were speaking in their native tongues that got their attention, but it was the message that they were preaching, that they were conveying about the mighty works of God. Again, this is a magnification of the power of the Holy Spirit taking place in God's people, along with the content of their message. This is what's intriguing these men and provoking their thought processes and causing them to be amazed and provoking more questions in their mind as they hear this gospel message. He goes on to finish this passage, verse 12. He says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, said they, were, they are filled with new wine. So they were bewildered. They were amazed. They were perplexed. They were astonished by all of this. They were drawn, however, to this message by this outpouring power of God's Spirit, which, causing, which is causing them to pause and ask, what does this mean? What is going on here? And yes, there were those who mocked them. There were those who didn't understand or want to understand what was taking place, and that was due to the hardness of their own hearts. And there will always be those who fail to understand, those who reject the message. But that doesn't stop the apostles, because they know the power that's driving this gospel mission. It wasn't because the apostles had this superpower that we don't have. No, it didn't affect them because they knew that they had the power of the Spirit within them as they carried the gospel forward. They trusted not in their own power, but rather in the power of the God who sent them and has empowered them to do so. And so this brings us then to this last heading, this application of today's passage. We're going to look at it more as, as a whole from a big picture perspective. And again, this third heading I, I simply entitled, The Implications of the Promise Kept. So as I mentioned earlier, this, this, this must have been one of the most exciting moments in the history of the people of God. There are many wonderful events and prophetic fulfillments that God accomplished throughout the scriptures, and we could name them, and it would take us forever. And all of them were undoubtedly encouraging and aroused and encouraged God's people. However, there are very few that I think were as encouraging as this moment recorded in Acts chapter 2. And while there are, are myriad implications of, of the church from this passage, I, I want to spend the remainder of our time focusing on the confidence and the encouragement that this passage provides for us as Christians today, as a Christian on mission in the 21st century. And so first, I, I want us to see the confident assurance this event on the day of Pentecost has provided for the church. First, we have the imparting of God's Spirit. How much more encouraging could it be but to have not only access to God, but to, but to know that the very God who has the power to speak creation into existence, the very God who has the power to conquer death and sin, this God not only revealed himself to us, but he has descended to take up residence within our own spirit, to habitate within us, to be intimate and present for us. I mentioned earlier that, that had God given us this mission and then left us to ourselves to do the planning and the implementation of the mission, it would have fallen flat on his face. The church would have never outlasted the life of the apostles, if that. But because God has come to us, because he is present with, present with us even in this very moment, 
He is ensuring that the mission is being sustained and that it bears fruit, whether we see it or not. Romans 8, verse 9 says that the Spirit of God dwells within the believer. The Spirit of God is, is literally within us. And so it's acceptable or it's accessible to us. So when we, we feel like what we're doing is, is not successful, when we don't see that, that tangible fruit before us, the thing that, that we need to fall back, because it's easy again to be discouraged in those moments, but the thing that we need to fall back on is the truth that God's Spirit is with us. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul recognized this. Paul didn't always see tangible fruit. Remember, Paul, probably the greatest missionary in the Christian church. But Paul even recognized this. He said, I planted the seed, but Apollos watered it, and God brought forth the fruit. Just because Paul wasn't there to see the end result didn't discourage him and keep him from carrying on the mission and sharing the gospel. No, Paul recognized he need only be faithful to the message. He need only proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and trust in this truth that regardless of what I see in front of me, God is going with me and he's doing a work that I may never know or see the results of. He trusted in that. He knew he had access to the Spirit. He knew he could call upon the Spirit for help. That we, didn't know, that we no longer needed an Ark of the Covenant or a tabernacle or a temple to have the Spirit of God because it dwells within us. The person and the power of the Lord is within us. He's not the, the deistic God of Islam who, who created and stepped away and just kind of left creation to kind of fend for itself. No, no, the God of the scriptures, the almighty, true, and living God, he is an intimate and personal God who is with his people as they go about this, this very difficult mission. Furthermore, he's not only present and active in person, but he's present in his power. We receive a confident assurance from this passage because if God is, is present and active in his person, he's also pre present and active in his power. We saw the magnification of his power when the Spirit descended and it was made manifest both audibly and visibly as, as wind and as fire, as well as the imparting of tongues to the disciples. And, and this should be incredibly encouraging to us when we think about the mission of the church because God's power, not our power, but God's power is efficacious, both now and then. The power of God's Spirit effects change. It causes things to happen. Whether we are, are making or training disciples, whether we are encouraging and edifying brothers and sisters or sharing the gospel for the first time with an unbelieving friend or even a stranger, the Spirit of God has the power to effect change in the heart of that person, a power that we do not possess. The Spirit of God equips the believer to be effective witnesses, to effectively and truthfully proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. But it is the Spirit of God that affects the change in the heart of individual, individuals. This should be encouraging to us as a church. This takes the burden off of the pressure that we sometimes put on ourselves that if I don't say the right thing or, or bring up the right topic or use the right apologetic method, I'm not going to get through to them. The pressure's not on me. It's not on us. 
we already know we don't have the power to affect that change. God affects that change. And he's with us. His power is dwelling within us. Doesn't become our power, but he is here and his power is at work. It's the Spirit of God that has the power to draw sinners to repentance. It's the Spirit of God that works to provoke new thoughts in the mind and stir new affections in the heart. And it's the Spirit of God that has the power to transform, to effectually call the unrepentant to faith and to change the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's the power of God that regenerates the unbelieving sinner and makes them a new creature in Christ. you read the remainder of, of Acts chapter 2, I think I mentioned earlier, you'll see the Spirit do this very thing. When Peter preaches his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he preaches the gospel, what happens? Many believe and more and more are added day by day to the church. And all of this serves as an incredible encouragement and empowerment for the church. As we consider the challenges, as we mentioned at the top of the sermon, whether it be discouragement of not seeing tangible fruit in our, in our efforts, and, and we start to feel as though all of our, our efforts are hopeless. Or if it's the idleness that we fall into as we grow content with where we are and what we've done. What we can know from, from this passage is that we are an empowered people. That we are a gifted people. That we are an equipped people. We are a people who possess the single most important resource that anyone could possibly have in both evangelism and discipleship, and that's the very Spirit of God. There's always going to be rejection when we share the gospel. There's always going to be setbacks and stumbling blocks when we disciple one another or when we're being discipled by others. But, but what we know and what we must remind ourselves of repeatedly as Christians, is that when we are reaching out to others, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that his promises are good. He promised to gift us with the person of the power of his spirit, and he has done so. So we go forward with the gospel, not needing to rely on our own power and our own efforts. Now, all those things are good, and I'm not saying there's no room for being trained. Matter of fact, I think I've already made the point, we should be discipling fellow brothers and sisters. I'm not saying there's no room for formal training in the Christian church, but what I'm saying is, when it comes to the conversion of souls, the saving of unrepentant sinners, the work to be done, it doesn't fall on us. We need only trust the message that we're sharing. Now that work that's done in the heart, that's accomplished by God and God alone. We simply need to be faithful. We simply need to trust that message. We go forward with the gospel, relying on the power of God. And we can do so knowing that his mighty power is at work. Again, I'll give you another illustration. I always think the best illustrations come from scripture. In Acts chapter 16, if you're familiar, this will be quick because I know I'm, I'm, I'm probably running out of time. Um, the conversion of Lydia, you know, the, the woman who sold the purple goods, it's a fairly familiar passage. If you, if you know much about the context at that point in Acts, Paul is heading out for a second missionary journey there. He's actually, his, he, it even, Luke even tells us his plans were to go back to all the churches in Asia that he had been to on his first journey. But God says, no, Paul. 
he, he, he doesn't let him go to Asia. He said, you won't speak a word in Asia. You're going to go to Europe, to Macedonia, and you're going to preach the word there. And so Paul goes and he preaches to Lydia. Having, you know, he, I'm sure he was extremely, he was from Ephesus. He was from that area in Asia. I'm sure he was very comfortable going back to Asia, but now he's going to Europe. Nothing's in place. No churches are in place. The resources aren't there. He gets to, to Philippi, where Lydia lives in Macedonia. There's not even a synagogue Typically, Paul went to the synagogue first because those were the people that were most likely to receive the message. It was probably the hardest city he'd been to yet. And when Lydia is converted, if you're not familiar with the passage, it doesn't tell us that Paul did anything extraordinary. He simply shared the gospel. And this is what it says, as a matter of fact. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul could have said, man, that's, that's a hard task. I don't know if I could do that. I've thought that myself. I'm not, I'm, I've been there. Man, that, that person, you want me to go there? You want me to talk to them? There's no way I can do that. But Paul went. Paul preached the gospel. And the Lord was faithful. The Lord converted Lydia. He changed her heart. He gave her ears to hear and eyes to see. Paul simply was faithful to the message. He trusted the truth that God's spirit was with him and he believed the message that he was preaching and Lydia was converted by the power of God. And so we, we must reject this idleness that we fall into. We must reject this idea of, or this, this uh, temptation to complacency. This passage completely dispels the notion that the gospel needs anything other than itself. That we need to add anything to it or take anything away to make it more attractive. That we need to work harder or get these programs or all these different strategies. Now the message is simple. Preach the gospel in and out of season. Rely on the gospel. It is completely sufficient in every way. Preach it to the church. Preach it to the unconverted. Share it with confidence, with encouragement. Not in yourself, but confidence in, in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit who is with you and at work as you are witnessing to the glory of God in Christ. God has gifted his church with the Holy Spirit for this purpose, to empower them to carry out the mission to which we've been called. We simply need to trust God has the power to do what he says he will do. Because he's done it time and again. And Acts 2 is a perfect example of that for us. If we need that tangible, if you're a Luke, I'm a, I was a Luke, I needed evidence, I needed to see things. It's the kind of person Luke was. He got all kinds of evidence. Here's our evidence. God follows through on his promises. When you go to share the gospel, or you go to disciple a brother or sister, you have the spirit of God within you. You, you need nothing else. No other power, no other resource other than the revealed word of Christ of, of the Lord. I have a whole other paragraph here, but I feel like I'm really pushing time, so I'm going to close right here. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'll turn it back over to Caleb. Our gracious and loving Father, God, we thank you again tonight for the blessing and the gift of your spirit that as believers we have within us at this very moment. 
God, we give thanks that, that you didn't make us work and earn our way to you, but rather you came to us, you redeemed us, and then you came and gifted us with your spirit that we might have access to the greatest power that we could ever know, which is yours. God, help us trust in that power as we share the gospel, as we disciple one another. Help us trust in you. God, we give thanks for all, I give thanks for all that this congregation is doing here at Revolution and all they're doing here in Portsmouth. I give thanks that we can have this brotherly affection with one another, with our churches, and I ask you continue to bless them. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.